Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Trey Dev. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Hutto Bible Church, and I apologize. Apologize for two things. One, my allergies are killing me, so my voice is a little rough, so be gracious with me. And two, I'll apologize on the front end. I know I tend to be long-winded, and I planned to be long-winded today. So just a heads up now. My wife actually shouted after first service when I apologized the first time. She's like, we know. And I was like, who said that? And it was my wife. So I get to embarrass her now. Well, we are wrapping up this morning our series called Awakening. And, and for the last two weeks, as we've be- begun to descend towards the end of this sermon series, I have been just kind of considering this question. It's been two weeks, and I, and I really believe it was prompted by the Holy Spirit, because two weeks ago, Bobby met me in the back room, uh, in the back of the sanctuary, and he said, hey, so what are you going to preach on in two weeks? And I said, I honestly don't know, man. Back off. <laughs> like, don't, don't come at me with that. I've got two weeks. And then I walked over, and I said, sat down over here. And as Bobby was preaching, of course, I was locked in on every word he was saying. But this question popped up into my mind that I have not been able to shake. And the question was so simple. It was just, this was the question. Where will they go? Where will they go? Like, for five weeks, right, we've been talking about revival and, and what it is and who causes it, where does it start, what happens if and when God sends revival. We've searched the scriptures to answer these questions. We've been praying, hopefully you've joined the church, we've been praying for five weeks now all along the way regularly and often for God to send revival. And for the last two weeks, I've just been sitting with this question, okay, where will they go? Like if God says yes to your prayers of revival, where will they go? Like we've said the last few weeks, maybe God will send revival. Maybe he will pour out his Holy Spirit. Or maybe God is actually preparing a remnant, a, a, a few faithful people as we head into these, um, you know, sort of post Christian waters, right? Maybe God's preparing a faithful remnant, but I've just been thinking, yeah, but what if God says revival, not remnant? Like, what if that's how he answers the prayer of his people? Am I ready for that? Church, are you ready for that? Like, would you be prepared if God said, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to answer them? I'm going to pour out my spirit because I think the thought of revival is beautiful and exciting, right? I mean, who, which, which, like, come on. Okay. Christians in the room, right? Who's, who's not excited about the Holy Spirit sweeping across our neighborhoods and our workplace and our cities and our nation and people repenting and receiving, like, who's not fired up about the image and the thought of revival? That's exciting and beautiful and crazy stuff, right? But here's the reality. If God says yes to that prayer, it's going to be messy and it's going to be grimy. And here's why because there's people involved, real people, not like theoretical, like actual people, sinners, real sinful people will be involved if God answers the prayers and uh, sends revival. Like if God chooses to pour out his Holy Spirit and the chief sinner in our neighborhoods and in our nation were confronted with the reality of their own depravity and their need as, as they compare themselves to God's holiness and grace, if they were to repent, where will they go to find grace? Like what I'm going to try and do this morning is I'm going to try and weave together a couple of biblical ideas or topics. This is why it's going to take me a while and forgive me in advance. I know you will because you're so gracious. I'm going to try to bring together God's grace 
and hospitality, two biblical topics I'm going to try and bring together. Each of them deserves their own sermon, perhaps their own sermon series. That's how prevalent they are in the Word of God, and yet I'm going to try and bring them together this morning and, and show you these are necessary things, necessary parts in the life of both the Christian, but, but also these are necessary for the outsider. And so if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. John chapter 4, it's actually really verses 7 through 26, but the whole story starts in verse 1. And as you're flipping there, um, what I want to do is define a few terms. Specifically, I want to define the term hospitality, because if you were to do an exhaustive search on hospitality in your Bibles, the odds are John chapter 4 is not going to pop up. I know because I have a software that can do that for me on my computer. John chapter 4 does not pop up when you search hospitality. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Let's define our terms. Hospitality. In the Greek, it's the word philozenia. It comes from two words. It's a compound word. The first one being the word philos, which is one of the four types of love mentioned in the Bible. It's a non-sexual, non-erotic type of love. It's like a a friendship uh, type of love. That's the first one, philos. The second is xenos. This is where we get the word xenophobia from. That's a fear of strangers or a fear of the outsider. So if you put these two words, philoxenia, together, you get hospitality, which at its most basic form just means love of the outsider or love of the stranger. Now, this is different from just hosting. This is different from dinner party stuff. That's, it's, that's a great way to embody and practice biblical hospitality is through um, hosting. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. But it is more expansive than that. It happens at our dinner tables and in our living rooms, but it goes beyond that. I believe that biblical hospitality can extend into our front yards and our backyards. I believe that biblical hospitality can extend to coffee shops and restaurants, to parks and play dates. Like I, I think it's more than a dinner party, but it's not less than a dinner party. You know what I mean? And here's what's, here's what's interesting. And I don't know if you feel this, but there's something disarming about being invited into somebody's home. Isn't there? There's something that's kind of like endearing to receive a text or a call. Like, Hey, just thinking would love for you to come have, like, there's something disarming about that. John Tyson He describes uh, the biblical practice of hospitality as creating portals of belonging, spaces where enemies, strangers, and outsiders can become friends, insiders, and siblings. He says that uh, that a biblical vision for hospitality is creating hospitable spaces in hostile places. And so in our home, in the Dove home, we call these holy spaces. And when I say we, I mean, I did one time and now I'm kind of forcing it upon the rest of my household, right? And Kristen is like, okay, whatever you want to, that's fine. Um, And the purpose of these holy spaces or these hospitable spaces is so that people can enter in and experience God's grace tangibly. Because I believe, just to be upfront, I believe that the only thing that really actually changes people, like really changes them, is God's grace. That's, I mean, I just, I'm convinced the only thing that can, can change a person in such a way that it has eternal and lasting impact is the grace of God. In fact, like as the spiritual formation pastor, my job is to really think about this question, what changes people? Like that's my job. And, and I love a good book on spiritual disciplines. You will find many in my office. I love 
you know, I love a good book that's like, hey, here's 10 things to do X, Y, and Z better as a follower of Jesus. I love that stuff, but I've really grown to agree with St. Augustine, whose theory of change comes down to a single word, and it's grace. It's grace. Now, that's a bit reductionistic, but, but what he, Augustine is going to argue for is that if you want to really see lasting change in a person, it is God's grace getting into their guts and working them out. Change flows from within. And so it's a reordering of desires. Like St. Augustine believes, as I do, because the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all else. And so what we need is a new heart. (laughs) What we need is God's grace to get up in there and begin to reorient our desires around what God says is good and true and right and beautiful. And so this is what, like, I just want to paint a picture of God's grace for you this morning. Can I do that? And then we'll get into John 4. This is what Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9 says. This is Paul. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in this passage, Paul is describing grace in the past tense, right? This is God's grace that covers my sins of past when I placed my faith in Jesus. I think if you're a follower of Christ, you're familiar with this idea, and you're so thankful for this truth that when I came to Christ, my past was completely covered by the blood of Jesus. His grace covers my past sins, right? But then Paul, in Romans five talks about grace a little differently. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so here Paul says, okay, we've been justified. We've been declared righteous by God before God, innocent through faith. We have uh, been made at peace with God through Jesus, which means we've been reconciled. We're not enemies of God. We are now uh, sons and daughters and friends. And then he mentions grace again. And he says that it's grace that we actually stand in. This is present tense. So God's grace covers my past, my sins of past completely covered by God's grace and even now as I stand here before you I am standing in his grace as a present reality over me in Christ Jesus but it gets better because in first Peter Peter says therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and so okay God's grace covers my past. I stand securely in it today as an ever-present reality. And then according to Peter, there's actually more grace waiting for me. God's going to give me more of that stuff. When Jesus comes back, there's more grace. And so in other words, this is like God's grace covers me. It surrounds me. It goes behind me, before me. If I go to my left, guess what I find? I find his grace. And if I turn to the right, there's more of God's grace right there for me. And and here's the basis of all spiritual formation. It's 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so every spiritual discipline, every act of confession, every sin-killing endeavor that I have on this side of eternity is so that I can experience and grow up into this all-encompassing grace that I have in Christ Jesus. 
And what I hope is that on the day that I enter glory, the song that I'm singing is a song of grace. And if it hadn't been written yet, or if I don't have one picked out, I'm going to write it. And it won't be great, but I think Jesus is going to like it. (laughs) Now, that's a lot of grace, isn't it? Some of us don't have a category for that grace. But I want you to look at John 1, 14, and then 16 and 17 briefly. This is about Jesus. John writes, and the word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth, right? For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so um, John's saying we can know this grace if we know the one from whom it flows, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's, um, he is grace incarnate, full of grace, full of truth. And so here's a question. What does it mean for the Son of God to be full of something? Like, what does it mean for him to be full of grace and truth? I mean, he's infinite. So how can you be infinitely full? Here's what it means. It means that he can just pour it out and pour it out and pour it out. And there's never a moment. There's not even space for him to be replenished because he's infinitely full of grace. And here's my point in all of this. That when we receive this grace from Jesus, it just keeps coming. When we place our faith in Christ, we believe in his sinless life, his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross and his glorious resurrection in which he defeated death and sin for us. When we place our faith in him, what we get is grace upon grace upon grace and there is enough of this grace for everyone. There's enough of this grace for anybody who would come to him. And it's this grace that flows infinitely from Jesus through faith that saves and secures and surrounds and it bounds endlessly and everlastingly into eternity for all who are in Christ Jesus. And this is like, let me just, this is for someone. I don't know, it was first hour, but I think it's for someone too. The way I'm wired is I'm just like naturally a legalist. So what that means is like, I feel like I have to earn everything. I feel like I've got to prove myself and everything. And here's, here's some good news for someone. If you're like me, there's nothing for you to earn. There's nothing left. In fact, if there was something for you to earn, you couldn't have earned it in the first place. But guess what? It doesn't even matter because he's just given it to you in Jesus, all of it, grace upon grace. And this grace, I believe, this all-encompassing grace is the very thing that has and is and will change me as a follower of Christ from the inside out. And if God answers your prayers, church, and he decides I'm gonna send revival, not remnant, my question is where will they go to taste and see and experience this kind of saving and transforming grace? So let's look at John chapter four together. I'm gonna set the scene for you a little bit. This is really the first six verses. Jesus, he's been up to, he's been busy, man. He's been up to some stuff. He's been teaching and preaching, drawing crowds wherever he's gone. He's made some enemies and some foes. The Pharisees are already planning, like how do we get him to shut up and silence this guy? And in response, Jesus and his disciples, they head to Galilee from Judea. Now on the road, someone, I don't know which disciple, is like, hey, Jesus, we're out of food. And so he sends them to the city to go buy some food. And Jesus continues down the road, heading to a place called Sychar, where he stops at a well in a region known as Samaria. Now, the location is significant of this story because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. 
uh, while they would each trace their history back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, when the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 BC and took the Israelites into captivity, a few of the Israelites remained in that northern kingdom and the Assyrians brought some pagans and some Gentiles and they began to marry and have children with uh, the remaining Jews and the formation of these unions were the Samaritans. And so the product then is you've got this, um, these, these folks who are part Jewish, part Gentile, and the folks who are 100% ethnically Jewish, they saw them as mutts and half-bloods. Now the Samaritans established a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim. It had been destroyed before Jesus arrived, but by the time Jesus shows up at the well, The Samaritan people had established a rich religious history and identity of their own. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that they were inspired, that they were sacred, but they rejected the rest of the Old Testament canon. And alongside their rich history and religious identity, there was a deep and abiding and shared disdain for the Jewish people. And so what a beautiful place for Jesus to take a break right? At a well in a place where he's instantly, like it doesn't, he just, he's just existing and they hate him for it, right? Now the text says it was the sixth hour, so it's about 12 o'clock noon, the hottest time of day, and as Jesus is sitting there alone at the well in Samaria, thirsty and weary from his travels, an unlikely character shows up to fetch some water. Let's look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now pause real quick here. Three things worth mentioning. First, women don't travel alone. You don't go get water by yourself. That's risky business. They go in groups. And so it's interesting. We should note that she's traveled alone. The second thing, uh, they don't come to fetch water at a well during the hottest time of day. They go in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. And so to go by yourself at 12 o'clock when the sun is at the hottest part of the day, um, there's a lot of question marks that begin to float around this particular woman. And then the third and final observation um, is that it would be unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a woman directly, privately in a public setting, let alone a Samaritan woman, but any woman. Uh, It was said to have been um, a way to ruin their reputation with other rabbis and disciples. And yet, (laughs) Jesus doesn't really care. He doesn't see this woman as a threat. She's not his enemy. He sees her as a person with a story and a person in great and desperate need. Verse seven, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. If you want to circle gift of God there, that word gift, it means free. Like it's a free, like I don't know if there are different types of gift, but this one's like, there are no strings tied to this gift. It is free without expectation. If you knew the free gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so Jesus asks this woman for a drink. She says, sir, there's a whole lot that's wrong with this situation here. First, 
You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Second, you're a man, I'm a woman. Third, you have nothing to, to get the water with and, and you asking to use mine is unthinkable. Like, sir, read the room. Nothing about this situation makes sense. You should not be talking to me. But he presses and he says, well, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. And what's interesting is the woman's response, she's not really curious or even confused. She's actually really suspicious and kind of condescending in how she responds to Jesus. Like she says, okay, do you think that you're greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well, he drank from it, his livestock drank from it. There's an implied answer and it's, you're not better than, like, who do you think you are, man? You know, like, what are you talking about? You are not better than our father, Jacob. You're out of your mind is what you are. That's the implied answer. And yet, despite her condescension and dismissal, Jesus presses further with tenderness and mercy. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so intrigued and perhaps somewhat desperate, the woman responds, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so while Jesus seems to be clearly talking about spiritual things, the woman continues to focus on the natural things. Nicodemus did this in chapter three, so she's in good company here, but but she's focusing on the natural things, the, the actual, the well, the water right there. And yet Jesus's words have struck a chord in the depths of this woman's heart. If you, if you pay close attention to what she says and the whole situation, right? It's the heat of day. She's there alone. What's up? All the question marks, all the red flags. What does she say? Sir, I don't want to thirst any longer. I don't want to come here by myself in the heat of day. I don't want to do this anymore. So give me whatever water you're talking about so I don't have to come back here. What would possibly evoke such an emotional response from this woman? Jesus says, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So there it is. All the question marks have found their answer. To have been married five times, that was scandalous enough, but to be, to be exposed and to be laid bare like that by some man you don't even know, like how does he know this stuff about me? Like with precision and clarity, Jesus calls to the surface the shame that she carries. He names the sexual brokenness that has defined this woman so much so that her daily rhythms and routines have completely ordered themselves around this perceived identity. <laughs> I'm a whore. That's what they think. And I'm going to order my life around that identity. And Jesus calls it to the surface. And you have to wonder, what is she thinking? What's going through her mind? Right, what feelings and emotions are feeling her are, are filling her body, 
her soul. I wonder if she's, if she's shocked by the statement that Jesus just made. I wonder if, you know, like when someone says something and you're kind of guilty of that thing and you're like not expecting him to say it and they do and you're like, like you kind of cut your eyes. Like I imagine her playing with the water bucket, trying to avoid this guy. And he says that and she like cuts this glance at him like, what did you just say to me? I wonder, like, when was the last time a man looked this woman in the eyes? Like, I wonder, when was the last time this woman felt seen by anybody, let alone a man? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good guess. You're getting warmer. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And again, highlight, underline, whatever you want to do right here. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And so can you just sense the dynamic beginning to shift a little bit at the well? Like, can you sense her heart softening? Her information is limited because her sacred text is small, right? They only accept the first five books of the Bible, and yet she knows it well enough to say, sir... Our people believe the worship of of the Lord's going to happen over here, and you say it's going to happen over here, and yet Jesus says it's not about the mountain. It's not about Jerusalem. It's not about that. Right now, the Father, God, is seeking out people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, when He says that, the word spirit there, what He's talking about is the inner part of a person. So God's looking for people who worship from their inner being, their heart, and then truth being God's truth. What's true is God has revealed it, both in his word and in his son, Jesus, the self-revelation, the truth of God. And so Jesus is saying, the father is seeking out those who worship him for who he is and what he's done and whose worship is an overflow of the living water from the depths that are bubbling up in their hearts and spilling out in affection and adoration and thanksgiving and love. And I love that like this woman is so focused on like the water, right? She's so focused on all the natural stuff. She's like, well, it's going to be, well, look, it's the water. Okay, what about the, the mountain or the temple? And Jesus is like, you don't understand what I'm saying. The Father is seeking out people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Why do you think I'm here? Why would I be at this well talking to you? If the Father were not seeking out people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Remember, church, revival is a sovereign act of God. It's His will. The woman responds, well, we know that the Messiah will come. And when He does, He's going to reveal all things to us. Bingo. Softball, right? I imagine Jesus leaning in, getting close, perhaps even touching her on the arm looking her in her weary eyes and with a gracious timber saying, it's me. I who speak to you am he. Unclean, unwelcomed, unwanted. 
with a water bucket in her hands and a bag of sexual shame on her back, Jesus invites this woman to experience grace upon grace. And she leaves changed, like radically changed. I mean, who can encounter this grace and not leave changed? And this is biblical hospitality, like at its most basic form. Jesus welcomes her in. He creates this portal of belonging. It's a hospitable place in a hostile uh, place. And he welcomes her in and her identity begins to shift and change as she experienced God's grace. I mean, church, do you believe in a grace that can actually save and transform the sexually broken, the adulterer, the gender confused, the porn, alcohol, or drug addict, or the criminal? Do you believe in that grace? Do you believe in a grace that can actually save and transform the proud, the haughty, the self-righteous, the glutton, the overly angry and abusive and the shopaholic? Do you believe God's grace is sufficient for those people too? Do you believe in a grace that can heal and mend the brokenhearted? And and what I want to be clear about is like, I'm not talking about those people that you're like, they're my project. Like, get that out of here. People who need to be fixed or projects or whatever. I'm talking about a grace that can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart that actually produces transformation. St. Augustine wrote in his confessions, thou movest us to delight in praising thee for thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Church, if you don't believe in this kind of grace, I don't know what hope you have. Because like, I just think Jesus, he speaks to this woman first. He initiates, he, he knows her sins of past and present. He sees her baggage. He knows what she's bringing to the table and he's not afraid of her, right? He addresses her sin with clarity and precision, but he just says, you don't understand. You're just thirsty. You're thirsty for something that's gonna satisfy. And so then he enters her life and her story and her circumstances and meets her with grace upon grace. And I love, like in the story, the disciples, we, didn't, we haven't gotten there yet, but like the disciples, they come back and like they see this happening and they're like, what do you think that's, what do you think's going on? Like they're like, what's he doing? Should we ask him? No one even, like the next, the next passage, they're like, so Jesus, are you hungry or want some bread or some figs? I don't know what you want. Like they don't even, no one thinks to ask him, Hey, what was that about rabbi? Meanwhile, the woman is gushing about Jesus in Samaria, telling everybody about him. Right. And I thought this week, you know, when I read the story, I tend to think that I'm like, I I think of myself like as one of the disciples, I'm kind of like, what's happening over there? Like, that's how I view it. But church, what if we read this story? And for once we just, we put ourselves in the position of the woman sitting at the well, talking to this Jewish man that we've never met. And as the conversation goes, it doesn't matter how hard I try to avoid him or deflect or whatever. He just, he's persistent and he keeps looking at you and he knows you. Like he really, really knows you. He knows your sins of past. He knows your present struggles. And then he says to you in the most tender tone, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But the water that I want to give you Oh, it's going to spring up to living water. You will never thirst again if you drink from this well. See, when Jesus confronts our sin, it's not simply to reveal the depths of our need, but it's to contrast and to to display the grandeur of the free gift that he gives us. 
Jesus will always deal precisely and directly with the sins of those interested in him, but he does it in a gracious way, doesn't he? And when we taste the the water of his grace, isn't it sweet? Like grace is only sweet if you drink from that well often. And so again, church, what if God answers your prayers and he sends revival? Like, what if the least likely people begin to show up at Hutto Bible Church? And, and when I say that, I mean those people. Whatever that means to you, yeah, those people begin to walk in. Will they find grace here? And by the way, they're already here. And they're thirsty. And when they come, they get to drink from the well of God's grace. What if God decides to answer your prayer of revival and he pours out his Holy Spirit, not on my neighborhood, not on Bobby and Amy's neighborhood, not on Michael Hall's neighborhood. We're praying that he will pour his spirit out upon James and Katie's neighborhood so we can get a Taylor church up and going, right? But, but what if God chooses to pour his spirit out upon your neighborhood? Will your neighbors have a place to come and experience God's grace? Like, will they find the answer for their thirst in your home? Will they find grace upon grace in your presence through friendship? Like, not an agenda, friendship. Will they find the grace to repent of sin and to wage war on their flesh and to walk in holiness and to deny self, to know more and more of Jesus? Will they find the grace when applied by the Holy Spirit that empowers and transforms them to become who God wanted them to be from the beginning? Now here's here's the thing. Like I can think of a few other places they might go. Places that call themselves churches where they will hear nothing of holiness, nothing of sin, They will not be called to a life of repentance. They will will hear of a cheap grace that only celebrates the sinful behaviors and patterns that they're already practicing. They call themselves churches and what they are is a bottomless pit, masquerading as a well. And when people sit in their pews, they don't hear a gospel that saves and transforms. They're getting a, a, uh, a weight tied around their neck. I don't want them going there. I'd rather them come to your home or to our church. And so where will they go? Because without a biblical commitment to hospitality, revival could happen, church, in your front yard and you would miss it. At best, you would be the person on the sideline clapping and celebrating as everybody else gets to have fun playing in the game. And at worst, you're outside of the stadium catching the highlights on Facebook. And I'd rather that not be the case. And so let's just stick to what Hebrews 13, 2 says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. These are our marching orders. And so with the little time that I do have left, um, I want to leave you with some tangible things that I hope will both challenge and encourage you as you lean into the practice of biblical hospitality. The first is pray. We've been saying it every week, and I'm going to say it again this week. Pray. Pray that God would send revival. Pray that he would until he does or he tells you to shut up. And as you pray that prayer, also add in the prayer, God, would you prepare my heart for if you say yes? Would you ready my heart for however you might might answer this prayer? Because again, if God says yes and you're not ready, what's going to happen? 
God, prepare my heart for if you say yes, that I might open my home, extend a hand, and dine with sinners and strangers. The second application is to turn off the news and open your Bibles. Um, I love a good political, cultural podcast, whatever. I've got a few that I navigate pretty frequently. And, and, and here's what I've discovered just for myself. And I see in others, but I really feel this for myself. When the bulk of my mental diet is cultural commentary, I'm becoming a disciple of the world and not a disciple of Jesus. My thoughts are the thoughts of the culture, not the thoughts of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, we are being discipled all the time. The question isn't, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? And so if we're a disciple of the world, what happens is that we begin to see people and we categorize them based on things, maybe external or whatever, we categorize them and they're either an enemy or a friend. And if they're an enemy, we withdraw and we reserve emotional uh, uh, resources, empathy. We're like, no, you don't get any of that because you're my enemy. I'm going to give it to the people who I like and who agree with me because we think the same. Psychologists have done that. Like it's legitimate. Like something happens in the human heart and brain that when we categorize someone, we put them in a box and we call them an enemy, we actually begin to withdraw from them. And then we, we head over here to our little camps where it's comfortable and safe. And that's just not, that's just not what the Bible allows. Like Romans 12 calls us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And the reason is because the opposite of that, Paul would say, is conformity to the world. No, a biblical anthropology tells us that every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God and therefore possesses intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Whether you like them or not, they're to be honored as an image bearer. Now, has sin corrupted the hearts of man? Totally. Exhibit A, right? Absolutely, that's happened. But even the chief of sinners has been ascribed dignity, value, and worth as an image bearer. And, and I think the reason some of us have a hard time believing this is because about other people is because we don't believe it about ourselves. We don't believe that we're, that we possess dignity or, or honor or value, that our lives are, are precious to God. For whatever reason, some baggage that we carry with, like whatever it is, we don't believe that about ourselves. And my encouragement is turn off the other stuff, open the Bible and hear God speak. And if you struggle with this about yourself, just open to the first two pages. It's there a couple different times, made in the image of God. Rosaria Butterfield says, as Christians, we believe that the human condition hangs somewhere between depravity and dignity. And I thought, man, that's so good. The third thing is open the door and create margin in your life. Uh, I told you this earlier. In our home, we use the phrase holy space. I do, and again, I'm forcing that upon my family. But like for us, in our schedule, Tuesdays are holy, like that's holy space in our week. Our home, our living room, our, you know, playroom, whatever, all of it becomes holy space on Tuesday nights because on Tuesday nights, our community group gathers. And we have 20 adults, Nine kids, eight of those kids are three and under, and our house is about 1,400 square foot. So if you were to walk in on a Tuesday night, your thought would not be, oh, this is some holy space right here. <laughs> your thought is like, are you guys okay? Like, what can I do to help you, right? It's, it's a circus on Tuesday nights, and yet you would be amazed at the stories of God's grace and transformation that have come through our door. 
the people who've sat over two years in our living room and have said, well, this is where I was and this is what God's done as I've experienced his grace, it would make some of you very uncomfortable. And by the way, those people are here in this church. And that's not to, to brag or anything. That's just like, this is what God will do if you will unlock the door and open the garage Now, if it's too much for you to invite a literal neighbor right now, start a church. Start with someone here. Start small and work your way out. Or if you're like, well, I live with my grandma in her, you know, attic or whatever. Like, it's just kind of like, it's not like a great thing to host people. That's cool. Again, biblical hospitality isn't limited to a dining room table. Go out, go to the park, go to the street, go to Chick-fil-A. That place is holy ground, (laughs) right? (laughs) But allow yourself to be inconvenienced. Allow it. It's a holy inconvenience. And then the fourth and final thing I want to encourage and challenge you with, this is specifically for parents, model hospitality for your children. I hope that you are teaching your children the gospel. I hope that you're having spiritual conversations. I hope that you got a copy of the New City Catechism and you're working your way through the the catechism with you. Like, I hope you're doing all of that stuff. Those are all wonderful things. But listen, your children need to know that Jesus is actually alive right now. That, that he's given his Holy Spirit to his people now, that the word of God is good because it comes from a good God. Your children need to know that Jesus is Lord Monday through Saturday, not just on Sundays, and they need to see that you actually believe this book. It doesn't just sit there and you bring it. Like You read this and you believe it. It gets into you. They need to see that your faith has legs, that it shapes joyously the way you live. Your children need to see that mom and dad aren't fearful and anxious because everything's going to hell in a handbasket. They need to see that you have the Holy Spirit and that you've been emboldened to love the outsider. Your children need to understand that they are not the center of your world and that holy inconveniences are worth it because other people are worth it. They need to experience the truth that God's kingdom really does consist of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just their own. And they need to see that the Bible dignifies people, and because it does, I will too. They need to see that it's possible to deny yourself for the sake of others, and that grace is just not, a, it's not just a theoretical or theological concept, but it's something to be experienced, and it can be experienced in your home over a plate of spaghetti, <laughs> and that that grace changes people. Teach your kids the art of hospitality, brother and sister. Because let me just tell you, Tuesdays are a zoo. It's a holy zoo. And every single week on Wednesday, my daughter, who's three, says, it's tonight Bible study. And I say, thank God it's not. (laughs) No, baby, we've got a week. Okay, Thursday is tonight Bible study. No, we've got a couple more days, a few more sleeps. Teach your kids. Model for them. And here's the last thing. I'll I'll wrap it up with this. Aren't you glad that Jesus did this for you? Like, aren't you glad that Jesus dines with sinners? Like, he he made the self-righteous folk really angry, but he created spaces where outsiders could come in and experience his grace. And when they did, their identities shifted and they began to change. That's hospitality, and he continues to do it even today. In fact, we get to come to the table of God's grace and hospitality. It collides right here in this meal. 
And so my encouragement, church, for you is that as you reflect upon God's hospitality and grace towards you, may you and I extend it to others. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your son Jesus, grace and hospitality collide. That he modeled it, he lived it, and ultimately, ultimately, God, the greatest place of hospitality is in your son Jesus. It was in his life, his death, and his resurrection that we've been welcomed in. And so we're so thankful, God. Help us to be a people whose hearts long for your grace to go out to the outsider and the stranger. And as you move, Holy Spirit, would we be eager to respond in faith, to unlock the door, to open the garage, and to welcome people in to our tables. As we come now to this table, God, meet us once again with your grace and hospitality. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.